0: Acts 5, 12 through 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, so, that so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that Peter came and by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found that no one was inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would come. And... The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But, the, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men out for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this, is the plan, if this plan is the undertaking of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We are studying the book of Acts, and so far in the book of Acts, uh, we've been reading about the early church and all these really amazing things that happened in this early church. We we saw these miraculous signs that took place. We saw that um, the Holy Spirit is working in these powerful and mighty ways. But over the last couple of weeks, Luke has been trying to let us know that even though these great things were happening in the church, everything uh, wasn't perfect. There were some bad things that were happening as well. So last week, Helio, if you were here, preached this awesome sermon for us about Ananias and Sapphira and how even in this early church, there was some hypocrisy that was present. And a couple weeks ago, we started to look at some of the opposition that was rising up around the church, that people weren't, not everyone was pleased about what was going on. And some of the powerful people, the religious leaders, they began to persecute this early church. And so today, we're going to keep looking at that. Um, The persecution that started a few weeks ago, it's now beginning to heat up. Uh, Things are, are getting worse. And the passage we just read, we see that it wasn't just Peter and John this time, but all of the apostles... They get arrested and they get beaten and they get reprimanded for preaching the name of Jesus. Now, there's a lot in the story, and uh, we're going to try to look at all of it really briefly. But what I want to focus on this morning is the last couple of verses. Those last, last three verses where it says, At the end of all this stuff, when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go, and then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I want to talk about these men rejoicing in the midst of persecution. Because I think that this is one of the most remarkable gifts that we have in the Christian faith. Um, The apostles, they're arrested, they're beaten, their lives are threatened, and yet when they walk away, they're rejoicing. They're happy about it. That's that's powerful. That's an incredible thing because that power is available for us as well. Um, That's what we find, right? All throughout the New Testament, all throughout the scriptures, we find that, that that power to rejoice in our suffering is not something unique for a time gone by, but that is available for us right now. And I think that's a resource that we desperately need. And so today, what I hope we can do here is, is first, I want us just to recap the story real quick, and then I want us to ask two questions. Why do God's people suffer? And secondly, what makes them rejoice? Why do God's people suffer, and what makes them rejoice? Okay, so again, let's, let's talk about this story. Uh, You remember, God is moving really powerfully at this moment in history. God's moving mightily amongst this early church. We just read the story where Ananias and Sapphira were struck down dead, and it tells us that this fear came upon the church. Now, you might think that would drive people away, that people would stop joining them at such a rapid pace, but uh, Luke tells us that actually the opposite is what took place. When people saw the holiness of God... When they saw his righteous judgment, when they saw his power, they were drawn to him. And so for, verse 14 tells us that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So do you remember we, when we read Acts 2, we, we read that on that day, after Peter preached, 5,000 people or 3,000 people came to faith. And then a couple chapters later, we we read that 2,000 more got added. So so we're up to 5,000. These huge numbers of people. And here, Luke is telling us, after this moment, even more than that, even greater numbers than we've ever seen before are coming to faith, are joining the church. And as a result, the leaders of the temple are filled with jealousy. They're really upset about all this. And so, they go back to their first plan, which was to arrest the guys and put them on trial. And it's pretty much exactly what they did in chapter 4, the chapter right before this. Um, we, We read they rounded up all the guys, they put them in prison. But the difference is, this time, an angel shows up and frees them from prison. He lets them out, and he tells them, go back and preach some more. And so when the day, when the morning comes, that's what they do. First thing back in the morning, all the apostles are in the temple and they are preaching about Jesus. And when the leaders discover that they're gone, uh, Luke tells us that they're perplexed. Uh, I think perplexed is a nice way of putting it. They're probably freaking out, right? Because the way things worked back then, if you're a prison guard and the prisoners escape, you are going to be murdered. There's a death sentence for that. So, so they're, they're panicking, but not for long. Because pretty quickly they found out that they haven't gone very far. The apostles are just right back in the temple, right where they had been arrested the day before, and they are preaching again. And that, of course, ticks them off even more, right? And so they, they bring them back in for this trial. And it's worth pausing there just to, to consider that story, right? God is, is showing that he's totally in control of this situation. He lets the apostles out. They go about their business that that whole day. He he can do as he pleases. And yet, he still lets them go to the trial. So even though God's in control, even though God could have totally freed them from this trial and led them somewhere else, he actually frees them so that they can come to the trial on his terms. Um, And so that's what they do. They go to the trial the, guy, the, the, the leaders are really mad. They debate what they should do, and eventually they come to the decision that rather than kill them, they should just let God have his way, that there's been other leaders like them. This will probably blow over, and so we're going we're gonna to just reprimand them, and it says um, that they beat them. Luke kind of breezes over that. right? He says he beat them, and then they go about rejoicing. Um, but that was a pretty serious beating. That wasn't like a, a small moment there. This was probably the maximum punishment you could get. It was, it was the 40 lashes minus one. And the way they did this was um, they would strap someone to a post and they would whip them with a leather whip 13 times across the chest and 26 times across the back. And a lot of times, not surprisingly, people died from that. I mean, it was a serious and severe beating, not to mention it's humiliating right it's humiliating to be beaten by other adults right Um, but Luke doesn't mention any of that he doesn't talk about them leaving humiliated he doesn't talk about them crawling home embarrassed and demoralized and wounded but he says that when they left they were rejoicing and that instead of listening to the warnings that they got this time the strong warnings probably the threats against their life it says they went back to what they were doing before. Preaching the gospel even more than they had in the first place. So that's the story. And before we get into that last little bit about their rejoicing at the end, I want to just talk a little bit about why God's people are persecuted. Why are Christians persecuted? Why do they suffer uh, for their their faith? Uh, These stories in Acts, these are the first instances of this these are the first moments of persecution Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of this until now but you can tell by their reaction that they aren't surprised they're not shocked that these things are happening they weren't even discouraged a little bit because Jesus had told them a long time ago that this is what they should expect Jesus had already let them know that suffering and persecution will be a normal part of being a Christian. It'll be a normal part of following him. But why? Why is suffering a normal part of the Christian faith? Why why would a group of people who are committed to following Jesus, the guy who said, love your neighbor as yourself, who said, turn the other cheek, why would that automatically lead to a life of persecution? Why does Scripture say with such certainty that, in fact, you will be persecuted if you follow me? Um, I want you to know, before I give some of those reasons, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I listen to his stuff, I read his stuff a lot, but particularly his book, on uh, the studies and the Sermon on the Mount have influenced me a lot this week. And if you want to hear like a really in-depth treatment of this, go check that book out. Uh, I'm going to give you some, maybe some highlights as I'm, I'm preaching through this. Um, but I want to tell you that the reason why uh, Christians are persecuted can be broken down to a, two things, basically. The first reason is that Christians are unlike everyone else who is not a Christian? Christians are unlike everyone else who is not a Christian. Now, that might sound simple, uh, maybe even a little bit obvious, but um, think about it this way the gospel message, it's a unifying message. It might be the most unifying message in the history of the world. Galatians chapter 3, right? There is neither uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. That's a unifying message. Or 1 Peter where he says, once you were not a people, but now you are all God's people. Together, that's a unifying message. But just because there is a unifying message in the gospel, it doesn't mean the gospel is only unifying. In fact, Jesus puts it quite differently in Matthew chapter 10. He says, don't think that I have come to bring peace. I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The gospel is a message of unity, but it's also a message of division. The gospel, it removes every boundary that keeps men and women apart from one another But it also creates boundaries. Because it tells us that people are either in Christ or they're not. People have either been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Or they are enslaved to sin. Destined for God's wrath and judgment. Either people are filled with the Holy Spirit and being transformed more and more every day to to be like Jesus? Or they are dead in their trespasses and their sins, and they are separated from God. And that means that a Christian is not just like everybody else with one small difference. It means that a Christian is not the same as the rest of the world with just a, a few tiny things changed a few different beliefs you know in the church we make a big deal about as Christians you know trying to act normal right trying to be normal people so people will be attracted to the gospel but the truth is we aren't normal people we aren't Paul says that we are a new creation the old is gone the new has come we're in this world we don't belong to this world. We live to please Jesus. We swear allegiance to the King of Kings. Not these lesser powers that the rest of the world tries to serve. And when Christians live that way, when we take that seriously, when we really truly live for Jesus, that makes the world insecure. It makes the world fearful. And, and, and it means that There is no amount of of creative advertising. There's no glossy way to package the gospel. There's no flashy way to do church that will make Christianity perfectly palatable to a fallen world. Scripture tells us that unless the spirit moves, unless God does something, non-Christians will always be put off by real Christianity. Christianity. Now, I want to be careful because when I say that, I I also have seen the other side of this. I've seen people crying out about persecution when it's definitely not persecution, right? I mean, if if you are a Christian and you're just acting like a turd, right? If you're you're self-righteous and judgmental to everybody around you and they don't want to be around you, that's not persecution. (laughs) You're just a jerk. (laughs) But I want to say, if you live a life... Committed to the Lord, then it is inevitable that you're going to be at odds with the world sometimes. Let me say that again. If you, if you live a life committed to the Lord, it is inevitable that you're going to be at odds with the world sometimes. Because you're going to be unlike it. You're going to be different from it. You're going to be different from everybody else because your reason for existing is to please Christ and not the world. That's the first reason. The second reason why Christians get persecuted, we see here in this passage, it's because our hope is not in this world, but it's in the kingdom of God. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. We follow the resurrected Son of God, and that means for us that death is not the end of us. It means that this life, this life we're living right now, this isn't all there is. And that means, if that's true, then this life that we're living, it also should not have the same power over us that it has over everybody else. I mean, think about this story, okay? Imagine how these leaders felt when they brought these guys in and they just beat them within an inch of their lives and they left smiling about it. That, that has to be so frustrating, right? Parents in this room, you, you, know, you, you know a little bit of this feeling, right? Have you ever disciplined your kids? Like I, I know that when I discipline my kids, and I think I've come up with some good punishment for them. You know, if I say, that's it, you know, no dessert tonight. And, and they walk off and they say, okay, Dad. Okay, you know, smirking, walking back up the stairs. Maybe they've got like a whole bag of snickers under their pillows already or something but i know that when they leave happy i've messed up if they leave happy i have not threatened them with something that really is of any value to them right maybe they're already full right maybe they maybe they have have something i don't know about so then you know you go back and you think of something else and no tv for a week right and then they start to whine and they start to complain and they start to beg and plead and then i'm like okay good that's what they needed it's frustrating to, to, to try to discipline someone and, and realize that your discipline has no power over them. And that's exactly what's happening here with these guys. For these disciples, it wasn't, you know, not dessert or, or TV, it was, he was even threatening their very lives, harming their bodies. It wasn't enough even to upset them. They left smiling. Because these guys, the head of these, this temple, these religious leaders, they didn't have the ability to threaten what they really loved. Okay, you got us. You beat us within an inch of our lives. All right, now let's go back and preach. <laughs> now we can get back to what we really care about. But why do they have such freedom? Well, it's because they, they really believed the gospel. They knew that death wasn't the end. Death wasn't the end of Jesus and it wasn't going to be their end either. Maybe, have any of you guys been following the story of um, Pastor uh, Wang Yi in China? Has anybody seen this? Um, It's come up a few times. You know, there's tremendous persecution happening in mainland China right now over some of these house churches. And um, This one pastor, back in early December, he wrote a letter uh, because he was afraid that the Chinese government might come to arrest him soon. And they did. It happened early December. He was detained and and nobody has seen him since. And now we're coming up towards the the middle of March. Um, He wrote this letter for his congregation to release to the world 48 hours after he had been imprisoned. And It's a really powerful letter. I think if you haven't read it, you should go Google it. You know, you'll find it on the Gospel Coalition or a bunch of other websites. Um, But if you read it, you will see that this man has a powerful hope in the kingdom of God. The portion of the letter, I want to read you just a couple paragraphs of it. Um, He tells us that he has chosen to continue preaching the gospel even though the government has told him not to. That he's chosen to be faithful faithful to God, not to men. And, that, that, and then he gives his reason why. Here's what he says. He said, those who locked me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and a grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, and that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and my children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life because no one, no one but Jesus can raise me from the dead. Do you hear the power in that? Our culture is more terrified of death than anything else. We do whatever we can to avoid thinking about death. We we are obsessed with with gyms and diets and apps that are going to promise to extend our lives in some way. We let people die off in sterile hospitals where we don't have to see it or, or think about it. We invest billions of dollars into research to try to cure every disease. And I know we're all sitting around hoping that by the time our time comes, we'll already have that cure, right? Alzheimer's, cancer, Parkinson's, whatever it is, we're hoping that they'll all be gone by the time they come for us. But only the gospel removes the power of death. Only the gospel takes away the power of death so that those who know Christ like this pastor, can, can look it in the eye and, and like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, say, oh death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? And when death is no threat, that makes the world upset. When you can march into a prison like the way these guys did and leave with absolute confidence that it won't affect your future, In other words, the world persecutes Christians. The world persecutes Christ's followers because, well, because they're like Christ. They have been made new by God's Spirit. And so they are completely different from the world's. And they live for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. So the world has no power over them. That's why Christians are persecuted. That's why we can be sure that it's going to happen. But the question is then, what makes God's people rejoice? What makes God's people rejoice in their suffering, in their persecution? I've been thinking about this question the most this week. In Matthew chapter 5... In the beginning of one of his most famous sermons, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, again, I want to mention we're not just talking about any kind of suffering today. There's lots of passages about that. We'll talk about that some other day. But but this morning, we're talking specifically about the suffering that we as Christ followers will go through for righteousness' sake. Because we are committed to living lives that glorify and honor Him. It is the inevitable suffering that comes from becoming more like Jesus. And that means, before we answer the, the, the why question of why we can rejoice... Maybe we should just answer the question of, do we suffer this way? Do we actually suffer for righteousness' sake? Now, we live in a country with religious freedom. Praise God. Hopefully, none of us are going to be arrested for for following Jesus anytime soon. But there are a lot of ways that we can be persecuted nonetheless. It could be because by, by losing a job. Or missing a promotion because we are unwilling to perform a certain task. Or to compromise our our values. It might be from being laughed at. Or belittled or treated like a fool for having faith in whatever industry. It might be from being divided from your family. Who doesn't believe the way you believe. And it could be like Jesus says here. By people making accusations against you falsely talking behind your back, accusing you of unrighteousness and wickedness. But it's worth noting that Jesus, when he talks about this kind of stuff, he speaks of suffering as a given. He doesn't say blessed are you if you are persecuted, right? He says blessed are you when? It's going to happen. So, If you call yourself a Christian and you never experience any cost because of it, if you find that you can move through this world and you're never at odds with it, you're never constrained by it, maybe that's not a good sign. Maybe it's worth asking yourself some hard questions. Now, I'm not telling you to seek out suffering, right? If you're saying, well, I don't, maybe I need to go start suffering. You know, don't, don't leave here and hop on the 42 bus and say, oh, tension, everybody, I need to tell you about Jesus, you know, so you can get kicked off the bus, because you will get kicked off the bus. But that's just being annoying, right? That's not suffering. That's not persecution. Don't, don't go looking for it. But what I'm telling you is, if you surrender your life to Christ, if you are committed to living in obedience to him, then this will happen. Eventually, this is going to come. And Jesus says, when it comes, rejoice and be glad. Now, if you're in the other boat, if this is not abstract to you, if you have very clear examples in your mind of times when you have suffered, when you've suffered for righteousness' sake, then you know that nothing is less natural than rejoicing in it there is nothing that goes against our instincts more strongly than than rejoicing and being glad when people come against you with false accusations you know I've I've personally unfortunately I've I've been through a lot of that stuff and when that gets combined as a pastor with like my core idols of really wanting to be liked by everybody and really wanting people to think, think well of me. This stuff, it's devastating. I wish I could stand up here and tell you how holy I am and how, you know, I jump up and, and, and celebrate just like these guys do in Acts. But that's just not, not the truth. Um, the truth is, in my life, in times when people have accused me falsely, I've spent hours feeling depressed, despairing, just wanting to run away from from life, feeling trapped, feeling bitter. But just this week, as I was studying through this passage, God gave me a new joy. And I really want to share that with you. I I hope that you're all still here with me right now because I want you to, to leave here receiving what I received this week. So real quick, here is why you should rejoice if you're suffering in obedience to God. One, if you suffer because you're doing what Christ wants you to do, then you can rejoice because it's proof that you're becoming like Jesus. Your suffering for righteousness' sake is proof that God really is not working in you. That he really is changing you. That he's doing exactly what he said in, in John 15, right? Where he says, uh, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. You can rejoice because it means... God is real. His Holy Spirit is changing you. God has made your desires more like his desires. He is making your heart more like his heart. And you can rejoice in that. You can be thankful for that. And also, another thing that Jesus tells us here, right in Matthew 5, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. When you suffer and you hate it, Jesus says you can rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. Paul, he puts it this way. He says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All this pain. God tells us, is directly connected to joy. This eternal joy, this everlasting joy that will never fade, that is waiting for you in his presence. That's an amazing thing. That's a powerful thing because it means that even when things seem really hard right now, you can believe that God's promises For you are real. They're waiting for you. You can claim that truth when you suffer. When you're tempted to despair, you can instead rejoice. This tells us that in the only kingdom that matters, the only kingdom that lasts forever, you have an eternal joy that is waiting for you. You have a real reward that's waiting for you. And so that means... Practically, that next, the next time you get that, that email assault, you know the next time somebody starts subtweeting you or whatever, <laughs> you start to feel that feeling in the pit of your stomach. The next time your obedience to God costs you your job or a relationship, or maybe, who knows, maybe it costs you your freedom like it has for a lot of people. The next time... You receive those 40 lashes minus one. However that may look in your life. Instead of despairing. Instead of retaliating. Jesus says you can rejoice. You can rejoice because it is proof that people see Jesus in you. And you have a reward waiting for you in heaven. And the last thing I want to say real quick. You know, maybe you're saying, well, isn't that kind of selfish? Isn't it selfish to be motivated by some future heavenly reward, some personal thing that we're going to get? No, it's not. It's biblical. This is what you're made for. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to be rewarded by being in his presence for all eternity. You exist for future joy. Being with God should motivate you. It should excite you. I think one of the reasons why the church is so depressed, why why we're often in in such a bad spot is because we don't think about this enough. We get too bogged down, too rooted in our our present day to put our hope in the kingdom that awaits us. But you're going to find out You know, this world, the longer that you're in it, the more painful it seems. The longer that you're in it, the more disappointing it is. You realize that it really can't meet your needs the way you want it to meet your needs. It can't satisfy your soul the way you want it to. But there is a place that can. There is a kingdom where joy awaits the people of God. And you know what? Jesus himself... ...was motivated by that. The author of Hebrews tells us... ...let us run the race that is set before us... ...looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith... ...who for the joy that was set before him... ...endured the cross, despising the shame... ...and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're told that Jesus longed for the joy of the kingdom... That he longed to be in his Father's presence forever, and he wanted you to be there, and he wanted me to be there with him. And that joy, the joy of that moment, of us all worshiping together forever in his restored kingdom, that motivated him. That motivated him to go to the cross, to endure suffering, to, to, to pay for your sin and your guilt and your shame. He did all of that for the joy that was set before him. So let that future joy motivate you. Let it be real to you today. Let it empower you. Let it break into this moment. Let it become your joy right now. Jesus is in you. He's visible to the world. And you're suffering. You're suffering right now, but it's not going to be forever. Because this world isn't all there is. It's coming to an end. So, as we look at this story, as we're closing, uh, as we look at Acts chapter 5, my prayer is that, that this would change us. That we'd stop clinging to the, the ways of this world. That we would stop living these ordinary, unspectacular lives that, that, that mean nothing to anyone around us. But instead, we would seek after the things that satisfy That we would live joy-filled lives of radical obedience to Jesus. That we'd be so committed to the kingdom of God that the world would be a little bit uncomfortable. That some people might even persecute us because of it. But like we see in this passage, others would see it and they'd be drawn in. Others would see it and they they would want to join alongside of us and make Christ their Lord as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are not absent in our suffering. But as we see in this passage, Lord, you allow us to go through it. And it's it's through the the disappointments of this world. It's through the, the persecution that comes that we're reminded that there's a better world waiting. Lord, free us from our bondage to lesser things. Give us the faith to come to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.